you'll turn with me to Matthew 27, and then we're going to jump over to John 19. Matthew 27, I'd like to read verses 24 through 30. Matthew 27, verses 24 through 30. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. Go to John chapter 19. We'll read verses 1 through 16 together. John 19, verses 1 through 16. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he delivered, who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. And sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed them, him over to be crucified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak mightily to us through your word today, that we would be attentive, that we would learn, that we would grow. I pray for those in this place who don't know you, that they would come to see the sweetness of Jesus, they would see their own need. They would cry out to him, the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. And for those who do know you, I pray that you would cause even just a, a solemnity to be here, a consideration of this mockery of justice that's going on, and yet we see this tremendous sovereign plan of yours coming to pass. Lord, I pray that we would respond appropriately to the things that we read about this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And be seated. When we speak of receiving the royal treatment, the royal treatment, to what are we referring? Typically, if you think of someone receiving royal treatment, you think of something like rest or relaxation. 
uh, pampering, massages, fine dining, elegant surroundings, comfort, service with a smile. That's royal treatment, right? The idea is that kings are to be shown preferential treatment. They should receive the very best that a nation has to offer, right? If there's anyone that should be treated with the highest honor and respect, be given the choice portions, be given the best of the best, certainly it's the king. Just for kicks, I did an internet search on royal treatment or how to treat a king. And I discovered that not only do massage practices come up, but tips on how women should treat their husbands, as well as a multitude of dog grooming services. Uh, I don't think there's any connection between men and dogs, but they just do come up at the same time. Now, I see what's going on here is that this idea of royal treatment, something being treated with royalty, it means giving them the best of the best. Even the use of the term king-size bed, that was developed in the 1950s by the American bedding industry because uh, males started getting taller and taller, and so it was to accommodate that. But then they standardized the size for the king-size bed. Um, But again, everything about kingly means grand and great and amazing and beautiful, and it should be the very, very best. So what treatment is deserving a king? How ought we to greet royalty? What sort of respect, what sort of reverence, attentiveness, what sort of obedience and awe should be given a king? What deference, what humility What submission ought to be immediately evident? If we were all to be instantly transported to a king's courtroom right now, what sort of actions would we take? And if he wasn't just some foreign dignitary, if he was our king, how should we treat our king? What lengths would we go to to honor him? What gifts would we bring? What titles would we use to address him? What sort of crown would we put on his head? What would our posture be in reference to him? What sorts of questions would we feel are appropriate to be asked the king? What sorts of actions would we encourage to be taken regarding him? Now imagine a king who had been long foretold, a promised deliverer, the king who would make every other king pale by comparison, a strong, powerful invincible king who is simultaneously merciful and gracious and loving. The kind of king that you would find yourself wanting to just lay down face to the ground before because he was just so powerful and so awesome. And yet, this same king being so compassionate and so kind, just drawing you in and just wanting to give him a hug that lasts forever. I mean, any king should be given the honor and respect that's due the virtue of his office. But a king who is particularly wise and good deserves even further gratitude and thanks for his good rulership. But how great must be the praise for a king who never does anything wrong, who always acts in accordance with perfect justice and perfect kindness. That king deserves our highest praise. That king, and he alone, deserves our worship, our adoration, our praise forever and ever. But we see this very king receiving a very different welcome, a very different royal treatment, both at the beginning and at the end of his life. And since we're celebrating Jesus' birth this week, and I really don't want you to miss our Christmas Eve service on Wednesday, I I would like to start by reminding all of us about how King Jesus was greeted when he was born, and then we're going to move to the text before us, and we're going to consider how Jesus was greeted leading up to the end of his earthly life. Two easy points. One, greeting King Jesus at his birth, and then secondly, we'll look at greeting King Jesus at his death. To look at his birth, we'll turn to Matthew 2, and we had this read this morning, verses 1 through 12. There's several different Christmas passages that we might look at, but this is the one that I've chosen for us today. And I first want to just comment, make a few comments about how the world welcomed Jesus. And we start by talking about a lesser king's anger. A lesser king's anger. Upon hearing news that there had been one born king of the Jews... 
Herod is disturbed. We're told that Herod is troubled by the news. This was not welcome news to Herod. This is because King Herod had fought tooth and nail for the title King of the Jews. You know, he was an Indumean. He was, from, he was an Edomite. He wasn't even a Jew. And he had fought for this title to be ruler over the Jews. He was definitely not a king by birth. He had gotten there by political maneuvering. And he was quite savvy in the ways of politics. And he was quite brutal as well. Killing not only other claimants, but even his own family members. Even his own sons. To make sure that they wouldn't take over his kingship. Herod guarded his position jealously. And so when he hears about this one born king of the Jews by the Magi, Herod called all the chief priests and scribes together to inquire of them, where was the Messiah to be born? It's interesting. Herod instantly connects. They come, the wise men, saying, where is this one born king of the Jews? And Herod's instant connection is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. And so he asks the chief priests and scribes, where is this Christ to be born? He's obviously connected king of the Jews and Messiah together. The scribes answer correctly by quoting from Micah 5.2, which proclaimed it would be Bethlehem. He comes from Bethlehem. That's where he'd be found. Herod, having surmised that this one born king of the Jews would be a direct threat on his throne, or so he thought, the, he decides that he's going to put a wicked plot in motion. He asks for the wise men to come back to him. He engages in a secret meeting with them in which he pretends to be curious about astronomical sightings. At what time did you see this star? (laughs) Tell me more about what happened with all of this. He pretends some sort of interest in the details about the star in order that he might then come and worship this king of the Jews also. But all the while, Herod's intentions are to murder this one born king of the Jews. He pretends some sort of motivation to worship him, but he has... Absolutely opposite intentions. And we're told in Matthew 2, verse 16, that later when the Magi are warned about the fact that Herod is um, after other, up to no good, we see that they're told to go another way back home. And when Herod finds out about it, he's enraged. Literally, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all the vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. He wants to know when they saw the star. He knew they traveled for a long distance. He wanted to know, when did you see it? Because that's going to give me a time marker to know about how old this child might be by this point. Which, by the way, um, does some odd things to our manger scenes, doesn't it? A lot of times we have the the wise men, and um, we don't know how many there were, but there's three gifts. A lot of times people think three kings or three three magi, but um, we don't know how many they were. They came with three gifts, but we had this scene where you have shepherds and the manger, and there's Mary and Joseph, and then you have the wise men with their gifts. Um, Technically, I mean, it works well for a Christmas pageant because we don't have two years to wait for the little baby to grow up a little bit, but but technically, they probably showed up at a latter time to a house. It wasn't even a stable. Remember, it's the shepherds who are told, hey, you'll find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in an animal's feeding trough. I mean, that's like, you'll know you found him because you'll find a baby sleeping where animals eat. Like, oh, there he is. <laughs> this is not common practice, right? So that, the shepherds come to that. The wise men come later. And so as a result, Herod surmises that, hey, he probably throws some wiggle room in there. It was probably a year and something. And so he goes, just two years old and under. Let's just slaughter all of those babies. I remember... Hearing last year on the radio someone presenting Christmas as a second attempt by God. It was explained, you see, he didn't come in flashes of lightning in a big pillar of cloud or fire. He had already tried that. It didn't make people draw near to God, and they continued turning away from him. So when Jesus came, he came as a baby. What is more endearing than a baby? I remember cringing as I heard those words. Let me just say this in response to that. It is truly astonishing that Jesus, the Son of God, would come to earth in such humility. It was definitely a demonstration of God's condescension to our needs. 
However, Jesus coming to earth and becoming flesh doesn't for one moment remove the otherness of God or his majestic holiness or his glory. It's not that, and it's also not that God had failed in his previous attempts regarding his children. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. It was all leading them to this moment, to this time. Every story points to this one great story that the great and mighty God would, must punish sin. And that's forever proven by the fact of the death of God's own son. If sin wasn't serious, Jesus wouldn't have died. But Jesus dies because sin is serious and because God must be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in his son. God cannot overlook sin. So if God was to demonstrate his power and to make his grace and mercy known, he must punish it, even if it meant the death of his son in the place of wretched evildoers. Yes, God is near. And yes, the idea of Emmanuel, God with us, the idea of that is the most delightful thought to those who repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. There is no greater thought than to know that God is with us. But to those who reject Jesus, there is no more dreadful thought than to think that God is with us, that God is near. You see, with the idea of God being in the flesh and God drawing near, there's actually with this, God with us, it might be actually unsettling. For a holy God's interaction with a sinful man is sure to just bring judgment to us. How is it possible for a holy God to draw near to me? I'm a sinner through and through. Remember Isaiah? Behold, I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. He says, I am undone. I am disintegrating before the presence of this holy God. Nothing but terrifying to think of a holy God coming near to sinners, except that this God is not only holy and just, but he's also gracious and loving. And that's the welcome news. This is why it's joyous. Because he comes near to rescue us. He comes near to save us. Jesus' coming is welcome to those whose hearts have bowed to God, who is their sovereign. His coming is welcome to those who see their own sinfulness and their need for grace and forgiveness. His coming is welcome to those who look to him as Savior and who submit to him as King. But to those who set themselves up as King, to those who reject Jesus as King, his coming near is terrifying. Think about it. Why is Herod terrified? It's a baby. It's a baby, right? Why go to such extreme measures to slaughter all babies two years of old, old and younger? He's terrified. And it's sad sometimes when Christmas is made out to be something like, oh, it's just so cutesy. There he is, God in the flesh, Emmanuel. And Herod's frightened. He's terrified. And all he can do is plot this baby's demise. This is because he believed, at least on some level, that this coming Messiah was a king. And Herod, the last thing in the world Herod wanted to do was to give up his rulership. Give up his king, kingship. So Herod would rather die in his sins than submit to the rightful sovereign and only savior. You know what? He's not alone. There are many people to this very day who reject their only hope, reject their only savior, their only hero, because they want to remain their own king. Yet for those who are blessed with eyes to see and ears to hear, this king was setting up a kingdom in which sinners and rebels can be forgiven, should they only repent and call out to him in faith. Well, that's Herod's. Herod's angry, Herod's troubled, Herod's frightened. What do the people do? Well, in the text it seems that they're kind of in an avoidance situation. All of Jerusalem, are told, is troubled alongside of Herod. This is most likely due to their knowledge of what Herod will do with any threat to his own sovereignty. But note that they were concerned more with worsening temporal conditions than considering the eternal implications of the arrival of the Messiah. They're more concerned about what will happen in their brief stay on earth than they are thinking about the eternal implications of the coming of the Messiah, of the Deliverer. And again, so it goes today. 
There are many people who avoid Jesus. They're more concerned with a few years. They might not even have days left of their life. Some of you might die within the next week. Not guaranteed another moment. But more concerned with fleeting moments than considering eternity. Note the seeming lack of any interest by the religious community. They're called in, the chief priests and scribes, Herod saying, hey, where's this uh, Messiah supposed to be born? Oh, Bethlehem of Judea. Okay, thanks. <laughs> there, there seems to be no interest in actually going to see him. Why isn't there a big entourage? Let's go welcome this king. Let's go welcome the Messiah. Here these religious leaders have intellectual knowledge regarding the Messiah, but they fail to act on any of that knowledge. The religious elite probably suffers from the same issues that Herod does. They're more concerned about their own power and prestige than they are humbling themselves before the promised Messiah. I wonder if any of us might fall victim to this, being a Bible answer person whose heart is meanwhile cold towards the Lord. Able to answer a question on where was Jesus born, or where did Jesus grow up, or how many parables did Jesus teach, or... And meanwhile, having no love for the Savior. You see, it's these same religious leaders, who we'll see in just a moment, are the ones crying for the death of Jesus, just like Herod wanted at the beginning. We must constantly be vigilant to make sure that the things that we know don't puff us up, but instead humble us and cause us to treasure our Lord and Savior all the more. Well, that's how Jesus was greeted at his birth, at least part of how he was greeted, at least how he was greeted by the world. Let's secondly look at the greeting of King Jesus at his death. And we start by considering the soldiers' abuses. Now remember, where we are in our gospel harmony together, Pilate is the Roman governor, and he's been fighting to try to get out of this pickle that he's in. He doesn't see Jesus as actually guilty of anything. In fact, he thinks what's really motivating this is some sort of envy by the Jewish religious leaders. And he's trying to figure out a way to get through this such that he can somehow please the crowd and meanwhile not put Jesus to death. So his plan, he says, how about instead I just beat him and then release him? but I'll give him a beating. Now remember, this all under the... What has he done wrong? Jesus has done nothing wrong. Pilate himself has already repeatedly said, I see no guilt in him. But now you see him negotiating with the mob, which never goes well anyway, does it? How about this? How about I rough Jesus up a bit? Maybe that will be... That will satisfy your demands. Maybe see some bruising, some blood... Maybe that will satisfy it. He hands, them, hands Jesus over to his soldiers, and the soldiers begin to torture him. Several forms of abuse are described here. He's beaten, he's slapped, and he's scourged. Now, Ryle explains the Roman scourge, and I'm sure most of you are familiar with this instrument of pain and torture. It consisted of a short wooden handle connected to several pieces of leather, which were then at the ends attached with pieces of lead or brass or sharply pointed pieces of bone. The body of the victim would be, they would, body, victim would be stripped, and then the body of the victim would be oftentimes strapped to a pole, and then they would begin to whip them to the extent where even deep-seated arteries would be exposed, Sometimes even entrails and organs would be exposed to the air as the body was just ripped to pieces. Typically, this sort of flogging happened right before someone was crucified. It seems in the present case that Pilate is trying to do something to avoid that crucifixion. He's wanting to beat Jesus up a bunch. And you can even see some of this as a discussion in the chronology between John's Gospel and that recorded by Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke record the scourging of Jesus after Pilate sentences Jesus to crucifixion, whereas John pictures it happening before the actual sentence of crucifixion, which has caused a lot of discussion and debate among biblical scholars. It is um, 
quite possible that there's that Matthew and Mark just don't care about chronological ordering here, and so they're just describing events, and so it's all describing the same event. There's also others, among them D.A. Carson, who argue that there were three different types of Roman scourgings, and it's possible that what Pilate did is he gave Jesus a lesser form at first, and then he, at the end, gave him another one before going to crucifixion. By the way, many people died during the scourging before they even got to crucifixion. That's how horrendous this thing was. And if Jesus did encounter two scourgings, a, a lesser one, if you could call such pain and torture lesser, but a lesser form and then a greater form, it makes a whole lot of sense why when they put a cross on his back, he can't carry it very far. And in and, and this case, instead of just kicking Jesus back to his feet, there's some amount of understanding for his condition such that someone else carries his cross. Regardless of the case, Jesus is at least whipped once, perhaps twice, in a most severe fashion. In all of this, we see prophecy being fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 5 said he was pierced through for our transgressions. There we think of the crucifixion. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Here the suffering servant suffers in the place of those who ought ought to be whipped and scourged. But then another form of abuse comes to the picture. It's not just physical. There's ramifications socially and intellectually and emotionally and or spiritually. And we see this. I mean, people can torture others in ways other than just physical. And here what they do with Jesus is mock him. They give him a mock coronation. They twist together their own crown of thorns. And I'm sure they weren't gentle as they placed that upon his head. They stripped him and clothed him in a regal robe. They put a reed in his right hand, I guess to be Jesus' scepter. And then they give him a mock salutation. So they give him a mock coronation, and then they give him a mock salutation. They say, Hail, O King of the Jews! Literally, even the Greek reads, they were coming up to him saying this. They were coming up to him. That what's being pictured here is it's like they're in a processional, lining up, coming up to him, genuflecting. Oh, hail, king of the Jews! And back to the end of the line. Oh, hail, king of the Jews! Indicating some sort of procession, some sort of formal manner in which they're paying homage to Jesus in a mocking and sarcastic way. I've noticed recently that my own children become immediately incensed when any of their brothers or sisters uh, mimic them or copy them in a way that's considered to be some sort of mocking way. Get irritated that really quickly. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, even my, my youngest, they all play it on one another. You know, you catch them doing it to one another. Um, but they instantly notice it. I mean, it's, it takes a second for these little children to recognize You're imitating me in a mocking way, and I don't like it. I'm offended by it. I'm insulted by it. These soldiers probably think they're quite witty. Ha, ha, ha. He called himself king of the Jews. We'll dress him up like a king. We'll give him royal treatment. The irony is the one whom they mocked was not only the king of the Jews, but the king of kings and the lord of lords. And one day every knee will bow to him, and it will no longer be in a mockery. It will no longer be in an insulting way. They spit on him. You think about the most demeaning things you can do to someone. That's got to be among the top, right? I mean, people can say mean things to you. It even seems like sometimes somebody could punch me in the face. Wouldn't be pleasurable. But they can punch me in the face. In some ways, spitting seems even, even more venomous. It's like, you're not even worth my, the fist coming to your face, right? It's not even... Worth that pain to my fish. I'm just going to spit at you. All this is a fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen to him. Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. Oh yeah, and by the way, on the third day I'll rise again. That also is told by Jesus. What about, we now picture another king here, another lesser king. And this lesser king has his own fears. Pilate now takes Jesus, who's been brutalized by his soldiers, and he brings him out in front of the Jews. And he says, behold the man. 
Now, he's been mocked, he's been beaten, and I'm sure Pilate's point is to say something like, you have nothing to fear from this. Behold him. This is the guy that's caused this huge mob and riot to begin. I've roughed him up. Look how pathetic he looks. He's dressed like a king. He's nothing special. I find no guilt in the man. This is by like five times Pilate says this. But it's almost as if he's saying, I've done this as a favor to you, and let's not pursue these ridiculous charges any further. There's nothing regal in his appearance at all. It may also be that Pilate thinks that maybe the crowds will have some amount of pity for this pitiful-looking man not appearing to be a threat to Rome or anyone else for that matter, beaten up, mockingly dressed as a king. This man, and whatever he claims he had made about being a king, seemed more fit for ridicule than for serious legal action. That's what he's kind of saying here. I wonder, though, if John intends a deeper irony here. Behold the man. Jesus often refers to himself as the son of man. It's the, mo- the title he uses most often of himself. We think of John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yes, here is the man. With a whole other feeling than Pilate said it. The chief priests and officers see Jesus, and instead of being pacified by what Pilate does, it's almost like as if there's sharks in the water and they smell blood. It's like, we got Pilate this far, we can get him the rest of the way. This guy's innocent, he's claiming that he's innocent the whole time, but meanwhile he beat him up for us, we can get him. And they smell blood. And they start shouting, crucify, crucify. Interesting. Greek imperatives here, commands. And it's second person singular. You crucify him. It's addressed to Pilate. Pilate, crucify him. You, crucify him. It may be that the Jews feel some amount of personal insult that Jesus continues to be called their king. Remember, he keeps describing him this way. Pilate does. And I don't think the Jews like that at all. They want to be disassociated from Jesus. Whatever the case, their sight of Jesus inflames their hatred all the more. Now, Pilate doesn't want this on his record, but he lacks the courage to stand up for what is right and just. So he says to them, you deal with them then. And then, interesting here, plural imperatives, y'all crucify him. You guys do it. You're calling me to crucify I say you all do it. I don't find any guilt in him. This also might be a sarcastic taunt. I mean, it's kind of like this. You brought him to me. You won't accept my judgment. Then you do something about it. But meanwhile, Pilate knows they can't crucify him. (laughs) So it's like this kind of idea, right? Like, you brought him to me. I told you he was innocent. I've roughed him up. You still want him dead. I say he's not worthy of being killed. You deal with him. Oh, yeah, that's right. You can't kill him. (laughs) You can't do what you want to do with him, can you? The Jews explain, well, Jesus is, he's, violated our own law. We've judged him by our law. He's blasphemed. He's made himself out to be the son of God. He ought to die. Probably an allusion to Leviticus 24, 16. But all that does for Pilate is make him even more fearful. He hears now that the claim has been made by Jesus that he is the son of God. Pilate, I'm sure, was already kind of flushing pale. He goes super pale now. And we're told that he immediately goes back into the praetorium to talk to Jesus some more. He's not done. He has to question him about this. To the Jewish ear, Jesus' claim that he is the son of God or the son of man, these have messianic uh, connotations. And then, as we travel through Jesus' ministry, Jesus makes other claims that are distinctive of, of deity alone. I mean, he says things like, your sins are forgiven. And everyone rightly goes, only God can forgive sins. Jesus is like, that's right. You know, by implication, that's who I am. And on another occasion, Jesus says, you know, before Abraham was, I am. He claims self-existence. Not only that I was prior to him, but I am. I exist throughout all time. That's a claim to deity. Much less if he used actually the word Yahweh in that, he's actually even using a word that they would have been, had a problem with anyway. So that kind of idea of son of God to the Jewish mind had messianic flavoring and then bordered on the line of blasphemy and then against, because they denied Jesus' deity, they said he did blaspheme. But to the Greco-Roman ear, this placed Jesus in the category of God-men. You know, you have the gods and then you have men and then you have like God-men kind of ideas. And so he's kind of like, where is this guy from? Herod must have been at least a little bit superstitious in this regard. He must have listened to some of the the old tales and the polytheistic religions that he was 
that was present all around him. And so now he feels like he needs to go back in and he needs to talk to Jesus and find out if this guy is some sort of God-man with some special divine powers. Remember earlier as well, his wife had warned Pilate that she had had a dream about this man and said, have nothing to do with him. So again, if you have premonitions and dreams and visions, all of this is kind of floating around, I'm sure, in Pilate's mind. And now he's even more fearful and more scared. He takes Jesus inside He says, where are you from? And when he asks the question, Jesus doesn't give him an answer. Pilate is irritated. He feels it necessary to tell Jesus about his own authority. Why aren't you answering me? Why don't you reply to me? Don't you realize my position, Jesus? Don't you realize where you are right now? Don't you realize that I have the power to crucify you? Don't you realize I have the power to release you? Pilate here is implying that it's in your best interest to talk to me, Jesus. I might be the only one that can get you out of this jam. I have the ability to release you. I have the ability to crucify you. I have the power of life and death. I exercise authority over you. Understand just how twisted this whole thing is. If Jesus is innocent, then Pilate has no judicial authority to put him to death. And if Jesus is guilty... Pilate has no judicial authority to release him free. I mean, your job is to judge the facts of the case, Pilate. It's not, you can just say if I'm killed or not. Am I innocent or guilty? Jesus, though, doesn't address any of that. Instead, just replies, the only authority that you have is given to you from above. He says, all authority ultimately rests in God alone. Everyone else's authority is given them as an entrustment from the Lord. And I think with this comes the idea of, And you're responsible to him. How you exercise your authority this day. Jesus goes on to say, your sin is not as great as these others. But regardless, he's involved in sin. He's guilty of his own part to play in the drama. And Jesus can be calm throughout the entire ordeal. For he's entrusted himself to the care of his loving Heavenly Father. No human authority has ultimate authority to decide Jesus' fate. Jesus goes willingly. Now Pilate wants to, he seeks to release Jesus all the more. Here again, Pilate, he's going back and forth between the crowds and Jesus. And every time he talks to Jesus, whatever happens, he's like, I want to get out of this thing. I want nothing to do with this. He comes back out to the mob. And once again, he's now confronted with their anger. And now they threaten further Pilate. If you release this, it's not even this man. The man there is implied. If you release this, what's has that connotation like Jesus is garbage or trash? If you release this, you're not a friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes or speaks against Caesar. The Jews have no problem saying, we're going to go to the Roman emperor and we're going to tell him on you, Pilate. These wicked men are now engaging in another, another sin, sin of blackmail. They're trying to threaten Pilate to get the way that they want. They're not concerned about truth or justice. And Pilate can hear these accusations flying to Rome. And if Caesar is predisposed to entertain suspicions about underlings, right? I mean, what does Caesar really know about all the goings-on? But if there are suspicions about some of those who are under Caesar who are allowing uprisings to occur, that will not go well with Caesar. And Caesar might not look into all the details, and that might be problems for Pilate. It's not like he'd get on his cell phone and explain all the details. He couldn't record the proceedings, right? He's got a mob of people saying, this is what Pilate has done or not done. And so at this point, Pilate reasons he can't afford to have that rumor circulating. So he tosses all sense of righteousness and justice to the wind, and he sits in judgment over Jesus and the stone pavement. His ultimate concern, as we can see, is obviously not truth and justice, but practical expediency. And it brings back the earlier statement that Pilate made to Jesus. What is truth? Pilate believes that that's a negotiable. Truth is negotiated. We figure out what it is along the way. Whatever fits me best is what his answer is to that. Pilate gets up before them. And he says to the people now, yet again, behold your king. Now, Pilate isn't a fool. He knows what's going on here. The Jews are pretending a loyalty to Caesar and Rome that is greater than Pilate's. 
Pilate knows the Jewish leaders are not loyal to Rome. He knows this is all a fabrication. And he feels hemmed in because he won't stand up for what is right or just. Once truth becomes negotiable, you're just a pawn. And that's where he is. And so now he's saying, you know what? At least I can insult them some more. Behold, your king right here. Your king. Behold him. Look at him. The Jews are, it's as if he's saying something like, I'm going to give in to your demands, but at least I'm going to stick it to you a little bit. As if to say, this bloodied, helpless prisoner is the closest thing you'll ever get to having a king. And yet, that deeper irony is sitting there, isn't it? Jesus was not only the long-awaited true king of the Jews, but is the king of all kings. The people reply, take away, take away that man. Again, it's just that. Take away that. Take away that. Pilate says, shall I crucify, note it again, your king? Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests reply, we have no king but Caesar. Ironically, to seal Jesus' execution for blasphemy, the Jewish leadership blasphemes. Do they really believe that? That their only king is Caesar? They claim that Caesar is their only king. How could they say that? They pretend a loyalty and allegiance to Rome as their first and foremost priority? You see, in this statement, the chief priests not only throw away Jesus, but even their hope for a Messiah. The ability to follow any claimant to the throne of Israel, because they affirm unquestionably the power and authority of Rome. And this is just an absolute absurdity, because the Jewish leadership was clamoring for the Messiah. They just didn't like Jesus. They wanted a different type of king. But they didn't love Rome. Here they are rejecting the true king and claiming an unquestioning allegiance to Caesar in order to put Jesus to death. Sounds just like John 1.11, doesn't it? Jesus came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. This leads us then to consider the people's guilt. The people will take nothing less than Jesus' execution as an answer. They won't settle for physical torture and insults and public ridicule. They want Jesus' blood. They want him dead. Pilate, on the other hand, is concerned about innocent blood being on his hands. Yet he resolves that he's not going to be able to prevent Jesus' death apart from a riot ensuing and Rome becoming involved, which will mean nothing good for his position and for his leadership. So, Pilate gets out some water and begins washing his hands in front of everyone, telling them all, I am innocent of this man's blood. Now, this whole sordid affair happens under Pilate's watch. With his authorizations regarding Jesus, Pilate cannot truly claim innocence. He had just told Jesus moments before this in private, right? I have the power to release you. I have the power to crucify you. And now he's saying, I'm innocent of the matter. Which way is it, Pilate? This is a good note to just say, engaging in some symbolic gesture does not make sin go away. Washing his hands does not free him from the guilt of what he was doing. I wonder how often we can get into those sorts of traps, thinking if we go through some religious practice or religious tradition, as long as we go through that thing, that we're all washed and clean and it doesn't matter. Symbolic gesture cannot remove the reality of what Pilate is doing. And the religious leaders and crowds, are, they're stirred up by... stirred up through all of this, They went from showing some amount of indifference at Jesus' birth to now demonstrating the culmination of their hatred for Jesus. Quickly and completely willing to not only put Jesus to death, but to accept all the guilt for that upon themselves. They say, let his blood be upon us, Pilate. We'll take that. We have no problem with that at all. As if they could, they can't. But they're saying, we'll take full responsibility for all of us. His blood be upon us and on our children. Matthew 27, 25. Some have wrongly read these words to promote anti-Semitism, but this is to misinterpret the text. Remember, Jesus and his disciples were Jews. If anything, this is a statement made by Jews against a Jew. The mob is accountable for their actions that day, 
just as we are all accountable for our sin, even when those sins aren't the same as that particular sin that they were engaged in. But the Bible also holds out hope to sinners. For in another sense, these words are crucially important to the work that Jesus came to do. For while the Jews were guilty of ushering Jesus to the cross, and therefore we could say his innocent blood could be credited against them, it is also true that anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord, confessing his sins, trusting in Jesus, can have that same blood credited for them. You see, while they're both guilty of Jesus going to the cross, it is also the reason for which Jesus went to the cross was to pay for the sins of guilty people. Jesus died and shed his blood to forgive sinners. Because his innocent blood was shed in the stead of sinners, rebels can be forgiven and can be cleansed. Both those there present and the generations to come, if they would but repent and believe. Oh, blessed news. This is, this is the glorious gospel. That while it is our guilt that sent Jesus to the cross, it is our guilt that Jesus went to the cross to pay for. He died for that. The, he, the innocent one, died in the place of the guilty, that the guilty might be forgiven and might be set free. There's one other group from Matthew 12 that we skipped over that I want to return to in closing this morning. For it's here that we find, I think, a rightful approach to King Jesus. All these were negative approaches to King Jesus. We've got to finish with a positive note regarding how ought we respond to Jesus. And if we're going to be wise, we ought to learn from the wise. So we look to the wise men and consider what example of royal treatment did they give. Because we find there that there is an example worthy of imitation. The wise men worship King Jesus. They are obedient to God in every detail. Having been born, they came to Jerusalem asking for the king. Hearing the king, the Magi proceeded and saw the star. Having seen the star, they rejoiced in exceedingly great joy. Having come to the house, they saw the child. Having fallen, they worshipped him. Having opened their treasures, they offered him gifts. Having been warned by a dream not to return to Herod, they returned another way. Every step along the way, obedience in reference to this king. The Magi recognized the kingship of Jesus. They showed him kingly priority. They offered royal treatment. They gave him travel worthy of a king. They traveled not weeks, but months from where they came from to come and see this newborn king. They knew that he was worth it. They showed him the posture worthy of a king. We're told upon entering the house and seeing Jesus with his mother, they see a little child and they bow down to the ground and they worship him. They're not there murderous with murderous threats. They're not there scourging him. They're there bowing down before him. As contrasted with Herod and the eventual actions of the religious leaders who desired to kill Jesus and the soldiers who mocked Jesus, these wise men humble themselves for they know that they're in the presence of true greatness. And then they open up gifts, gifts that truly are worthy of a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Did you notice in singing We Three Kings, whether or not there were actually three kings, um, that song, the lyrics of the verses is, are incredible. So on point. I hope you were looking at that. If not, you need to grab the lyrics and look at it again after the sermon. But all three of the gifts that they bring were exceedingly valuable. So they're all gifts worthy of a king. But historically, the church has recognized some symbolic nature to the gifts. The first being gold, a symbol of wealth. It was definitely a kingly gift. It symbolized Jesus' kingship, that he was king at his birth, right? Lord at his birth, king at his birth. He was born king because he already was king and he always will be king. He's given frankincense, which was a temple spice. It was used in the temple all the time. Was Everybody associates this with Jesus' deity, that he was God in the flesh. And then myrrh. A, beer, a burial spice. Look a little bit further in John 19. Go down to verse 39. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. About 100 pounds weight. This is perhaps the strangest gift brought to Jesus. Something that would be instantly recognized as something accompanying burial. And yet, it points to the reason why Jesus came. It seems odd to bring something associated with death to a baby shower. 
And yet that's what they bring to Jesus. Because Jesus was not only king and he was not only God, but he was also man. And as man, he came to die for sinful men. While being himself innocent, he died in the place of sinful men. You see, the gift, the gifts that were given by the wise men highlighted the value of the gift that God had given. And in their joyous response to the incredible reality that the one born king of the Jews was there with them, had arrived, they gave from delight that Jesus was here. The Messiah had come, and his coming would have implication for the entire world. Jesus came to save us. And to do that, he would have to die in the place of sinners, taking their sin upon himself, suffering in their stead, removing their guilt and their shame. The innocent lamb of God was treated as though guilty so that the guilty might be treated as though innocent. The righteous one died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And that's our king. This is our king. May we give him the treatment befitting his royalty. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the marvelous gift of Jesus. I thank you that while we welcomed him in wrongful ways, yet none of this prevented your plan. As a matter of fact, your plan worked in and through all of these things to bring to pass an incredible, incredible happy ending. An ending beyond our wildest dreams. One that we can't hope to completely uh, understand. Thank you for your marvelous love and grace. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross, bearing the sin and guilt of those who repent and trust in you, redeeming them, bringing them, adopting them into your family. Lord, at this time of year, as we contemplate your birth, Jesus, we thank you for that tremendous condescension, thought of you taking on flesh and dwelling among us. We also can't help but think about what that all meant as it led up to the day in which you were crucified and you laid down your life as a ransom for many and then gloriously rose again from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the grave. But I pray that we would honor you and worship you at all times and so therefore certainly during this Christmas season as well. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.